Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Well, I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege this morning to share God's truth with you and to also close out our sermon series, Corbin. Well, it was about... 10 years ago that I was halfway through my year-long engagement with my wife, Ashley, which means we were working through all the details of getting a a wedding ready and honeymoon ready and all those things. But when we got to about the six-month mark, we had everything locked down. We had all the details ironed out. We had the church, which was going to be in northwest Montana, we had the pastor, which was Ashley's grandpa, who actually planted that church. The church was brand new. And when we were going to have our wedding, which was early June, the weather in that area was going to be perfect because the church was located in the Flathead Valley, which means it was going to be 65 degrees in the valley, but surrounding us were all the mountains, which would all be snow-capped. It was going to be perfect. So we decided to have an outdoor dinner afterwards. And so we put up a tent so everyone could see God's natural beauty. And we had to, of course, feed people, right? You have to get the food. And so we had some church ladies and our friends work together to get the food all ready. We even had somebody offer us a roasted hog that they roasted underneath the ground to perfection for our wedding. We had our bridesmaids ready. We had our groomsmen ready. We had the suits and the dresses all perfectly tailored. Everything was falling into place. I even had all the details of the honeymoon ready. You see, a long, long time ago, I decided that for my honeymoon, I always wanted to go on a cruise. And so I saved and saved and saved and saved and saved. And since we were in Northwest Montana already, it was just a short little jaunt to get to Seattle to do an Alaskan cruise. And so I got a balcony cabin. It was going to be perfect. All the details were locked down. All the details were in place except for one detail, pre-marriage counseling. You see, we thought if we spent all this time planning for one day of our lives, maybe it might be a little wise to spend a few days planning for the rest of our lives. And so we met with a pre-marriage counselor and he shared all the details of how he was going to walk us through this journey and how many weeks we're going to meet. And then we went to him and we said, okay, take a good look at us. Take a good look at our relationship. Go ahead and, and pick it apart so we can have a successful marriage. And that's what he did. Week after week after week after week, we had these very difficult conversations. And for the most part, it went pretty well. Until we got to one very specific question, he asked us both, how many kids would you like to have? Now my wife very quickly and definitively said, I would like to have four children. I responded, well, I actually would like to have zero children. Of course, this was going to be an issue right? Ashley had come from a larger family, and so four seemed like a a very logical and reasonable number. 
at that point in time in my life, I was working with middle schoolers every day. And so zero made an awfully lot of good sense for me, right? Now, of course, this would throw our conversation into turmoil because she had a very strong stance and I had a very strong stance. And when you're dating, it's really cute to have differing points of view, right? Oh, they're so interesting, opposite track. It's so adorable that they think this way. But when you get married, it's the commonalities that you want. And this was a big topic because if I got my way, she would experience loss. Right? But if she got her way, well, then I would have a different form of loss, probably just the loss of freedom. But it was going to be a big deal. And as humans, we know this, right? We don't like loss. And there's sometimes when we approach marriage, if we have to lose the big things in life, especially those things that we really value, we know it's probably not better, it's probably not best to walk down that path. Well, today we're going to look into this Old Testament writing, in the book of 2 Samuel. And we're going to engage with a young married couple who's just had a child and they're about to experience some very significant loss. This is their story. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So as we look into this Old Testament book, we're encountering David. Yes, that David, right? The famous David, the king of Israel, David versus Goliath, the David who is referred to in the Bible as the man after God's own heart, whose through his lineage would come Jesus, the Messiah, who would die on the cross for our sins. It's this David, right? This David was a very, very, very big deal. But if you know David's life, you also know that David had a very, very, very big mistake that he made. You see, one day he looked out and he saw this beautiful woman who caught his eye and he was curious. So he sent his servants out to get to know her and see what she was all about. And when they came back, they said, David, she's off limits, right? She's taken, she's married. But David did not stop his pursuit. He went over, he brought her into his palace. He seduced her. She ends up getting pregnant and now he's in trouble, right? Now he's got to figure out some way to cover this up. So he tries to get the husband home who was a soldier in his army, tries to get him to go home to be with his wife so he can pretend that this is actually Uriah. This is the husband, his name. This is Uriah's child and not David's child. But Uriah doesn't go home. So David has not covered up his sin. So instead he takes some extreme measures. He puts Uriah at the front of the fighting and Uriah ends up dying as a war hero. After this, David takes Bathsheba, this is the wife of Uriah, into his home so they can have the child within the palace, right? He ends up marrying her and David looks like a hero because what has David done, right? This poor widow, she lost her husband in battle and now the king brought her into the palace. What an inconvenience, right? David is such a nice guy and he covers up his sin. At least that's what he thinks until Nathan shows up. Because we must always remember that God knows everything. And Nathan was a spokesman for God. And so Nathan shows up to tell David a story. And when he's got David's attention, he says, there's a rich man, David, and there's a poor man. The rich man has everything, right? Anything he would ever want, including many flocks, many animals, right? That's who this rich person is. But then there's a a poor person. 
who has basically nothing. In fact, the only thing that he has that he values is this tiny little lamb who's become like a pet to him. It's become like a family member. Well, as the story goes on, Nathan tells David, the rich man had a guest over. And like when you have guests, you got to feed the guests. And so he needs to feed the guest. But instead of going to his flock and providing a meal, he goes to the poor person. He takes his lamb, which is like a family member, slaughters that, and then feeds his guest. And when David hears a story, he is outraged. And he says to Nathan, this man who did this, this rich man, he must die. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are this rich man. Now, when David hears these words, he knows exactly what Nathan is talking about. He was the rich man with many wives and all these resources, but yet despite that, he had to have the little lamb, right? He took Uriah's wife into his home and then he killed off Uriah. This is what David had done. And when Nathan points out his sin, David responds by confessing. He says, you're right. I deserve to die. I have let my savior down, right? I have let God down. I have, I have failed. And Nathan says these words from God that are, are so surprising to us. He says, you're forgiven, right? God has forgiven you your sins, which should offer us great comfort as humans. Because there's times we screw up. We all know that. But there's sometimes we really screw up and we come into church. Maybe we don't want to go to church because we're just nervous about how, how egregious our sin has been, right? We don't want to be here because we feel like we're going to be struck down. But we have this time of confession and forgiveness for anyone and everyone, no matter what you've done. We seek out God's grace and we hear his words of compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And he forgives every sin. And when he does this, the eternal consequences of our sin are wiped clean. However, the temporary consequences aren't always completely gone. And this is what we read about. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became very ill. Now there's something we need to know. Sin always has consequences right? Sin, our sin in our life, it will always produce temporary consequences. And for David, the consequence that Nathan tells him is that this child is going to die. Now, I'll tell you right up front, I really struggle. I really struggle personally with this section of scripture because it was David and Bathsheba who are the adulterers, right? They're the ones who had the big egregious sin, but the child had done nothing, the child is innocent, right? It's just the byproduct of a choice from these two adults. So why does the child die? But it seems like David and Bathsheba, for the most part, are off the hook. Now, if you have that skeptical side of you too, I get the struggle, right? It, it makes a lot of sense. We don't really understand what God is doing here. Now, I could come up here and I could try to maneuver around it and dance around it and say, well, God knew that this child, that someday he would have a very rough life. And so it's better if he's just in heaven right away. And I could do that, but I, I don't want to do that because I don't know. I don't know. We know God is loving. We know God is merciful. And maybe that's what happened, but, but we don't know. And so we're just stuck 
with this tension. And the story moves on. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him, urging him to rise from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So David responds like I think all of us would respond. In fact, even if you don't have any faith whatsoever, when we run into hopeless situations, this is what we do, right? We try to make a deal with God. And that's what David is doing. So he knows the child is going to die, but there's still hope. And so he starts fasting, right? He's not eating. He's praying. He's laying on the ground. He's showing his repentance. He's doing all of this stuff. The people are coming in saying, David, get up. We're concerned about you. You need your strength, right? You need to eat food. But he said, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to do everything I can to save my child because that's what dads do, right? It's built into our core to do anything, including to die for our children. And so David says, right, I am talking to God. I'm going to do my best to see if I can maybe catch his favor, get him to change his mind, even if it means that I'm going to stay here and starve to death and I'm going to die. Well, this is what happens. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we tell him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. So on the seventh day of this child's life, he dies. And this is incredibly, incredibly significant. Notice how we don't know the child's name? It's because we don't have a name because the name hasn't been given. Because in Jewish tradition, the child was given the name on the eighth day the same day that the child was circumcised. When the child was brought into the covenant of faith in the Jewish community and God's promises were laid upon it and the people made their promises to raise the child in the faith. Now, if that sounds oddly familiar to you as Christians in the modern day, especially in a Lutheran church, it should because we do something very similar, don't we? We have infant baptism. And what do we do? We bring them to the font which is eight-sided, representing the eighth day, the day of circumcision. And we do the same thing. We baptize the child in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We lay him into the arms of God. We trust in his promises. And then we make commitments, right? The parents say, I promise to raise this child in the faith. The sponsors or godparents, they do the exact same thing, right? We promise to help guide the parents and guide the child in the faith. And we, we have this moment where we connect the child to God. And that gives us great comfort. And in the Old Testament, David would have received great comfort from this time of circumcision. But he does not have this experience because the law said it had to happen on the eighth day. And these people are concerned about David because not only has he lost his child, but he's lost his child on the seventh day, one day before he could have had this experience. And they're concerned that if he loses all hope and he gets in this space of hopelessness where tomorrow is not going to be better than the day before that he might consider the worst possible option to end his life. Well, this is what he does. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. 
Now remember, David knows the child is gonna die. He's been told by Nathan from God that the child is going to die. This is a consequence for his choice, right? His sin, he knows it's coming. But despite that, he was hoping for something better, right? He was hoping for something better. But he notices the temperature in the room has changed and people are acting differently about him. So he says, is the child dead? And they respond, he is dead. But here's David's response. Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went into his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. You see, David's response to loss is so strange to us. It's so strange. When we would isolate ourselves, we'd probably put on sweatpants and maybe eat ice cream if we eat anything at all, right? We don't eat anything or we overeat. We get away from people. We just sit in our sorrow and our sadness. David instead gets cleaned up, showered up, like he's going to a party. He goes to the temple, which is like their church, right? He, he worships God. Then he goes home and he has a nice meal. This is strange to us. It was strange to them. And so this is what happened. Then his servant said to him, what is the thing that you have done? You fasted and wept from the, for the child while it was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. Right? They notice this odd behavior because the way we humans behave is very consistent, even back then. Right? When someone's dying, what do we do? We put on a brave face and we go near them. David did the opposite. And then when someone dies, that's when we go into our time of mourning and we do these things like isolate ourselves, overeat, undereat, kind of get sloppy, right? Because we're in grief. But David does everything what seems to be the wrong way. But maybe it was the right way. This is his response. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live. You see, what did David know about God that we should know about God? That God is incredibly gracious because what happened at the beginning when Nathan showed up, right? God forgave David this horrible sin. So David, he fasts and he prays and he's hoping on God's grace, right? That's what he's hoping for, even though he doesn't experience it. And he goes on to explain even more about his behavior. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, another thing we see about David and his understanding of God is that he lived with an eternal perspective, right? The child was waiting for him. And when we learn to live with an eternal perspective and we realize we have only to gain in the next life for those who are in Christ Jesus, then the loss of this life, the things that we lose, the things that we lose grip on, the things that go away, the things that we break, even the most precious things, we perceive it and we experience it very differently. Well, this past July, my wife and I, we took a trip up to Minnesota, just us, not the kids. We dropped the two kids off at the grandparents because we just wanted to spend some time alone because we had a real important conversation to have. The conversation we were gonna have is, do we want more kids? After all, right, we'd already split the difference, right? She said four, I said zero, we have two, right? So we were good. Right, we had arrived 
in my mind. And we had figured out how to navigate that family dynamic really, really well. And to change it would give her, you know, more of what she wanted. I would experience maybe a little bit more loss. And we'd have to figure this whole family thing out again. So we drove up to Minnesota, had a great weekend together, came back down. As we're driving back, I look at my wife and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. I'm willing to have one more child with stipulations. I said, first of all, you have to promise me only one more. No surprises, no twins, no triplets, none of that, right? Only one more. I said, also, here's the other thing you have to promise me, because I know she has control over all this stuff. It has to be a boy. I want two boys to protect my daughter. And she says, of course, I can do all those things that you ask. But we agreed, we were willing, God willing, that we'd be open to having another child. So fast forward to September, my wife walks into the living room and she holds up the pregnancy test, which right now are pretty clear cut, right? There's no symbols, it just says pregnant, not pregnant. And it says pregnant, which means we're gonna have a kid. And so we're happy, right? We're hugging. You start doing what you normally do. You tell the family first, and then over time you unveil it to other people. We start filling the family in in our good news. Well, as time goes on, my wife is feeling this kind of spirit of apprehension. She can't quite explain it. She just feels like something's not quite right. And she's telling me this. She says, you know what? It, it feels different than my last pregnancies. Of course, I'm like, you're fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You're just, you're just really being overly concerned, right? You're just full of worry. So we go to the first ultrasound. And I thought this would lay it to rest because the text says, everything is perfect. This child is perfectly healthy. There's only one. That was good news for me, right? Everything was great. We go home. Ashley still has a spirit of apprehension, this concern, this worry that just will not go away. So we get to the point of the pregnancy where now we're going to decide the name. And so we're working through some names and we come to the name Corbin. Now the series, it's been C, right? In, in your Bible, it's this Corbin with the C. But Ashley has this thing where she wants all of our kids to have the same first initial. So we had to kind of transpose that to Corbin. But the name Corbin, you should probably know what this means if you're here last week. If you weren't, go back, you can listen. But, but last week we learned that Corbin is a special gift to God above and beyond what is expected. Where we give control of that thing to God and we relinquish our control, right? A special gift to God. And because we were having this turmoil and because Ashley was having these thoughts, right? This was the perfect name. Boy or girl, whatever happened, we were gonna name our child Corbin because our family, our child, our children are a gift to God. And we thought this was the perfect name, especially with how she was feeling. And so I thought this would give her some more comfort. And I was feeling fine. We went in for our second ultrasound. And this one was quite a bit different. The tech came in, was doing all the scans. I could tell that she wasn't really sensing that this was a good situation. Finally, she says, I gotta bring somebody else in here. So they bring in another medical professional and they sit down with us and they say, well, we have a problem. The child is not developing like we would like it to develop. And there's a good chance your child is not gonna make it. So we go home, of course, we're heartbroken. Right, there's nothing we can do except for pray. That's what I did. 
I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and spent many sleepless nights telling God, you know, your will be done, but I want this child. Your will be done, but we want this child. It's your child. We have given it to you, but we want it to give it back to us so we can raise it. We can add it to our family. We want my son and my daughter to have this sibling, right? We'd already told them about their future sibling. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And on December 3rd, Corbin was born, but not like our other children. He didn't reach up and grab my finger like my other kids did. He did not respond to us like other kids did. There was no crying. You see, when Corbin was born, he was instantly in the arms of Jesus. He was free from any pain this world has. He was free from any loss he might experience. He was with Jesus. And we sat down and we read the story about David. And we held on to the same promises that David held on to in his loss because we knew Corbin was not going to come to us, but someday we would go to him. And we held on to that promise. You see, as believers, we're not exempt from loss, but we are exempt from experiencing loss the same way the world does. You see, one of the beautiful things about being in Christ is that we live with an eternal perspective. We have everything to gain in the next life which means we have nothing to lose in this life. And we learn to live with our hands wide open. And we give everything to God as a special offering for him to use, for his will to be done. Let's go what you're waiting for. The way it's hey.